Wow. If you have a Bible, um, turn to Philippians chapter 3. I'm coming down the back hillside of a, of a long cold this week, and I appreciate those of you who prayed for me. And um, So if you hear excessive sniffling and a few coughs here and there, you'll, you'll know why. <laughs> um, I, I appreciate your, your patience with me there. All right, Philippians chapter 3. All right. Philippians 3, verses 1 through 3. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same thing to, things to again is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard for you. Beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the false circumcision, for we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Let's pray. Father, may you once again this morning peel back the storm clouds that seek to to hide our vision, cause us to look at lesser things. May you peel them back and may the sun shine brightly this morning. And may we rejoice in grace. Do this work in our hearts this morning, Father. Remind us again of your glory in the gospel. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. Paul gives a, a, a rather peculiar command here. Uh, a, a command that I think, if we're honest, is, is a little unsettling to us. He says, rejoice in the Lord. Re- rejoice in the Lord. And in our, in our church culture, that, that aspect of rejoicing in, in emotion, I, I think we struggle with. Because if you're like me, many, many of you grew up in, in, a, in, a, in a church culture where somehow the, the youth pastors figured out that if we, if we get enough lights and we get enough smoke machines and, and we get everybody all excited, then we can, we can fabricate the spirit here and everybody can be all excited and jacked up on Jesus juice and Maybe you went to conferences and everybody had this experience. Everybody had a wonderful time and, and then they came back and faded away. And, and so you, you, you know well the, the falseness uh, of, uh, of an emotional high and that that can't be leaned on. But then the, there's the other swing that, that wants to go the other direction and, and fall into the quote-unquote frozen chosen. Well, well we're just going to sit here and we're, we're not going to have any motion, nothing at all, and we're just going to, to reflect on lofty theological things. But, but let's, not, let's not get too excited. No dancing, no waving hands. And, and so there's this tension in our Christian culture. And in the midst of that, Paul says, rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. And, and I think that's a, that's a struggle. 
What does, that, what does that mean, Paul? What are, you, what are you saying? Are you saying that we're supposed to be just walking around on cloud nine happy all the time and that that's our display of, of Christian witness? Is, is that what you're saying, Paul? Or does Paul mean something on a deeper level? What does he mean? Because we don't, we don't trust our emotion. We don't trust our emotions in this day, Right? You see people who are walking around and they're giddy and excited all the time and you go, there's something wrong with you. You're on drugs or you're, 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 you're in this false sense of reality. And, and we, we're a little afraid of that, right? We don't want to live in this false sense of reality that's disconnected to what's going on around us and to the, to the real world. And so we don't trust our emotions. And again, in the midst of that, Paul says, rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. So what does Paul mean here? So here's what I want to do. I want to show from from this text that grace is the foundation for our joy in the Lord. Grace is the foundation for our joy in the Lord and that legalism, trying to add anything to the grace of Christ, robs us of that joy. So let me say this again. I think what Paul's meaning here by this command and what he says in the next two verses is that grace is the foundation for our joy in the Lord and legalism, trying to add something, anything to the grace of Christ robs us of that joy. And if we think of, of, of our joy in the Lord as sort of a lithmuth test, I can never say that word right, lithmuth test, uh, of our heart's appropriation of grace. Because I think if we, if we were in a small group here, we went around and, and everybody's heart just kind of got out on the table, I think many of you would confess, I struggle with this. I, I struggle to have joy in the Lord. Or my joy is surrounded by circumstances. My joy is surrounded by how I'm doing. And so we wanna, I want to lift grace up here. I want to lift grace up to its uncomfortable level and say, this is, this is what we rejoice in. This is what we rejoice in. Because if we miss grace, if we miss grace, we miss the gospel. If we miss the gospel, we'll go around thinking that we're headed for heaven when we're actually headed for hell. That's crucial. That's crucial. So that's, that's where I'm going. Let me say that just one more time. Grace is the foundation for our joy in the Lord and legalism, adding anything to grace, robs us of that joy. All right. So how does Paul open here? He says, finally. I, I love this because if you have any literary sense about you, you realize Paul's only about halfway through his letter. And he says, he says finally. Now, this shouldn't come as any surprise to you all because y'all have, uh, most, most all of you have, sat with Alan and I, and you're used to us saying, and in conclusion, and 30 minutes later, we finish the sermon. I don't know. And, and we have a biblical precedence for that. I don't know. And that's, that's wonderful. It's encouraging, isn't it? Um, but, but Paul says, finally, and, 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 and here he's, he's meaning to shift. He's, he's, he's not saying, I'm closing out. He's saying, he, he's saying I'm shifting to something, to something else. I'm, 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 sh I'm shifting something else, and he's, he's getting ready to move on, give some exhortations in here. Um, he's giving sort of part two of what he's already been, been carrying out. Um, and so that's the direction that he's going. And he gives this command, and it is a command. He says, rejoice in the Lord. 
a, a transliteration of this, and, and one commentator put it this way, I thought it was well-worded. Paul is saying, I command you to be always making every effort to be rejoicing in the Lord. I don't know what that is. Um, oh, time. <laughs> I command you to be always making every effort to be rejoicing in the Lord. It, it's a command. It's a command. And this is something that Paul has already said and he's gonna come back to. This is why he says, to say this again is no trouble for me. Look in, uh, in chapter two, verses um, 17. He says, but even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your face, I, what? I rejoice. I rejoice and share my joy with you all. You too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way. Share your joy with me. He's, he's, he's saying, I'm being poured out as a drink offering. No, and we covered this several weeks ago. Being poured out as, as a drink offering, and I'm not complaining about it. I'm rejoicing in it. I'm, I'm rejoicing to be poured out as an instrument for your growth, for your sanctification, for your salvation. I'm rejoicing in it. You share that joy with me. That joy that Paul talks about in Philippians is not just an individual personal joy. It's meant to be shared corporately amongst the local body. And then he also carries this too in uh, verse 29 when he's talking about Epaphroditus and he says, I'm sending Epaphroditus back to you. Receive him, verse 29, receive him then in the Lord with all joy. Receive, he's, he's, he's a man of honor. He's a man of honor. Receive him in joy. Paul will later come back in chapter four, verse four and say, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. So, this is a big thing for Paul, especially here in Philippians. <clears throat> and Paul is carrying on a, a biblical theme here just to show the, the grandeur of this, of this command, rejoice. Here are f here just a few texts that, that, that give kind of weight to, to this, that Paul didn't just pull this out of the air, that, that he's pulling this from a biblical theme that goes far uh, before he was even on the scene. In Nehemiah chapter eight, do not be grieved for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Psalm 32, 11, be glad in the Lord and rejoice you righteous ones and shout for joy all you who are upright in heart. First Chronicles 16, 10, glory in his holy name. Let the heart of those who seek the Lord be glad. Let them rejoice Paul will say later in, in uh, 1 Thessalonians 5, 16, rejoice always. And in, 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 the, in the New Testament, we find that part of being in the kingdom of God, Paul says in Romans 14, is joy in and through the Holy Spirit. In fact, Paul writes to the Galatians and he says that one of the fruits of the Spirit of God is what? Joy. Is joy. <coughs> Excuse me. So this command to rejoice has biblical precedence and, and Paul intends for it to land on us. That we're not just supposed to be the, the humdrum, but to actually rejoice. There should be joy in our worship and in our lives. So what does that mean? How do we, how do we define this? How do we define this joy? How do we define this joy? <clears throat> Let me give you a, a, a definition I think that's, that's helpful. Rejoicing 
is the overflow of your heart when it lays hold, either in full or in part, of what it treasures. Say it again. Rejoicing is the overflow of your heart when it lays hold, either in full or in part, of what it treasures. That's a big that's a big flavor, that's a big aroma. If you think of like a, a pie, I like pies, pies are good. Think of pies, no? And, and there's key ingredients sort of in that that make up all of that, that flavor. And so in the flavor of, of rejoicing, there's ingredients of peace, right? Things, things are well. You taste a good pie, you're like, mm, that's, that's, that's good. That was made well, right? It sits well. There's excitement, there, there's goodness, there's, there's boasting in it. All of those flavors sort of mixed together, all those ingredients mixed together to make up rejoicing. Let me give you some just very practical, tangible examples of, of, of rejoicing, of that, the overflow of your heart when it lays hold of, either in part or in full, of what it treasures. Your favorite football team. You know, you're, you're down into overtime, you're tied up, right, and your team scores the touchdown, and they win the game. You, you rejoice, right? You get up, and you, you throw the popcorn, and you scream, and you holler, and you yell, or you're all excited, right? It's the overflow of the treasuring of, of, the, uh, of the win, right? Yes, we, we secured it. We secured it. Think of this. A soldier who's presumed to be dead comes home and is reunited with his loved ones. What, what, what does the wife do? What do the kids do when they see daddy? They, they rejoice, right? Daddy's home. My, my heart longs for him and he's, he's gone, but now he's here. That's rejoicing. It's rejoicing. Maybe think of, maybe think of when you got your first car, right? Or, or, or you, 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 you got a new computer or, or you know, that new smartphone, whatever it was that you wanted, and you got it. You were excited, right? Do you have, do you have memories in your past of, of, of excitement, of rejoicing when, when you laid hold of something that you really wanted? Those memories stick in our mind of our rejoicing, of our rejoicing. Rejoicing is the overflow of your heart when it lays hold, either in full or in part. Because Paul says elsewhere to, that we rejoice in, in hope. In hope. Either in full or in part of what it treasures. So, here's the command to rejoice. Command to rejoice to let the overflow of your heart come out in laying hold of what you treasure. What is it that Paul calls us to rejoice in? What's the source of that joy? He says it's the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. And specifically, how does he mean the Lord there? He means Christ. Look at verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 11. He's, this is where he's, he's talking about Jesus. He says that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That the rejoicing will be over Christ as Lord. Paul means for us to see that Jesus is worthy of the excitement of our souls. And that that rejoicing is born out of laying hold of the grace of God through Jesus. 
That's the emphasis on it. That's the emphasis that Paul's, that Paul's pushing for because he, he moves on to say, it's no trouble for me to say this to you, to give you this encouragement to rejoice. It, isn't that amazing? I mean, here's Paul writing in the first century and he's, he's repeatedly saying, rejoice, rejoice, rejoice. Don't you know that the Philippians struggled with this? I mean, we think we struggle with it. That The Philippians struggled with it. They were suffering. They were in a culture was popular to, to follow the way, to follow Jesus. They were suffering. Paul says it's been granted to you not only to believe in Jesus, but to suffer for him. And he calls them to rejoice. Rejoice in, in the Lord. Rejoice in Christ and the grace that's been given to you. But joy in the Lord is, is, is elusive. And it's elusive for so many of us because if we're honest, grace is scandalous. Grace is uncomfortable. It, it, it is unbelievable. So let me just show you, uh, let me show you how grace is really the foundation of joy from a, from a couple texts. And, and then I want to go to this aspect of, of legalism because that's what Paul points to. He says, rejoice in the Lord, and then he gives a warning. He gives a warning because it's easy to slip away from rejoicing in grace and rejoice in our works. Let me lay this foundation of grace first. Jesus had something to say. He said, he, you look in the Gospel of John, and, and joy was a, was, a, was a big aspect of Jesus' ministry and what he taught, and he wanted us to rejoice in the Lord. But at one point, Jesus is, he's, he's talking with the Jews in John 8. And the, the Jews are arguing with Jesus. And they're saying, well, we have Abraham. We have, we have the law. And Jesus is saying, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm of the Father and, and you're not. Well, what is it that the Jews boast in? What is it that they want to rejoice in? They want to rejoice in their, their heritage. They want to rejoice in their, in their lineage. We have Abraham. We've got the law. What do, you, what do you mean we're, we're, we're not the people of God? And Jesus comes to them and speaking of Abraham in, in, in verse 56, he says, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. And he saw it and was glad. He saw it and was glad. How did Abraham rejoice to see Jesus' day? What, was, what did Jesus mean? Back in Genesis, remember, Abraham, who, who's a Gentile before he's a Jew, he's a Gentile before he's circumcised, God gives him the promise, I will bless you and I'll make you the father of many nations. No, your offspring will bless the nations. He gives this promise to a man who's well advanced in age, who has no business having kids biologically. His wife has no business having kids biologically at all. And he says, this is what I'm gonna do through you to, to, this, to this Gentile, to this, this pagan Gentile. He says, this is what I'm gonna do. Now consider Abraham's state when he gets that, that promise. He's totally dependent upon God to fulfill that. He's got nothing. He brings nothing to the table. And he, and he looks forward in faith that God will do this that God will do this. And you move a little bit forward in, in, in the Old Testament and, and so God gives him the offspring, right? And gives him 
gives him Isaac, and the people of God are, are formed, are fashioned. You've got, uh, you, you've got the, 12, the 12 brothers that eventually make up the 12 tribes, Exodus from, uh, <coughs> Exodus from the Egyptians, right? Everything's looking good, and then all of a sudden, God brings his people to Mount Sinai. And he says, I'm gonna give you a law. He gives them the 10 commandments. And, and at the outset, if you never read the Bible before, you might come up to it and go, okay, well, this is, this is good. God's fabricating, he's fashioning this people for himself, and he's giving them the rules. You know, we're making progress. We're making progress. This is how God's gonna fulfill his promise. The problem was that the law actually made, made the fulfillment of the promise harder. It made the fulfillment of the promise harder because the people couldn't keep it, right? If you, if you read your Old Testament, isn't that what you find in, isn't that what you find in Judges, in, uh, in, in all of the Old Testament was that the people failed to keep the law of God. They failed to keep the law of God. And what's more is that the law made a distinct separation between the Jew and everyone else. You see, sin separates people from God. And the law didn't fix that problem. Not only did it not fix it, 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 shone, it shone the light on just how bad the problem was. Here are all these nations, and they're not getting it right. Here's, here's the people of God. Here's the circumcised. Here's the ones whom God has set apart. They're not getting it right either. So Jesus' claim here to be the fulfillment of Abraham's hope, not, not the law for the Jews, not their heritage, that Christ's death, burial, and resurrection would break down all of those barriers and unite the people of God on, in, in, one possession, in one possession as one people. He says, Abraham looked forward to that and he rejoiced. He rejoiced in the grace of God to do that, to do that work. See, Paul calls this in, in Philippians. He says, we're the true circumcision. We're the true circumcision. The, the, the old heart, the old stony heart that wants to live by the law is cut off. It's replaced with a heart of flesh, a soft heart that loves as God loves. Paul saw this because this is where Paul moves to in, in Philippians. Look a little further. I won't, I won't dwell on this. As Alan will unpack all of this next week, maybe in the next four weeks. Um, there's a lot there. There's a lot there. Look at, look at verse 8. Here, here's how Paul captures this. He sees the grace of Christ in the cross. Or, or go to 7. He says, whatever things were gained to me, he's talking about his, his conformity to the law, his, his, his heritage, all, all of the earthly tangible things that he could lay hold of and, and boast in and rejoice in, he says, all of these things, he says, whatever things were gained to me, those things I've counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value. All right, here's, here's what Paul treasures. Here's what Paul treasures. He's about to tell you, here's what I boast in. Here's what I rejoice in the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain 
Christ and may be found in him not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings and be conformed to the image of his death in order that I may obtain to the resurrection from the dead. This is what Paul boasts in. Do you hear that? Paul says he's completely dependent upon the righteousness and the finished work of Jesus. You read Paul's uh, resume. I mean, he's, he's got reason for boasting more than anybody else. And he says, anything that I could boast in, that I could rejoice in, I toss it to the side. In, in light of the surpassing value of knowing the one who has clothed me in a righteousness I couldn't fabricate myself. Paul knew his need for grace. He saw that and he cherished it. He cherished it. We delight in what we value. We rejoice what we treasure. Paul calls us to look at the cross, behold the wonder of grace in Jesus and to rejoice in it. To rejoice in it. But, but if we're honest, grace is uncomfortable. I mentioned that earlier. It's, unco- it's uncomfortable because we, we realize we bring nothing to the table and, 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 and we have no leverage there. It produces in us the desire to repay, to kind of balance the scales. How, how do you handle somebody showing just kindness to you? Showing grace, showing kindness to you. Does it, does it produce in you a, a need to repay that kindness? Let me do something kind for you. I, I, feel, the, I feel the need to, to, to repay that to you. Grace has a tendency to cause in us a stirring that wants us to do something in response in order to solidify God's favor for us. That that's here's where the temptation for grace plus works comes in. Grace plus works. And that's, that's legalism. And that's what Paul warns about. He says, to tell you to rejoice in the Lord, to rejoice in the grace, the free grace that God gives you through Christ, it's no trouble to me and it's a safeguard for you because he knows the temptation to slip into legalism. That's what the Judaizers were doing. It's what those who were coming in and saying, well, yeah, we, we, affirm, you know, we affirm salvation by grace through faith, but you've got to be circumcised. But you've got to uphold these rituals. You've got to do these things. Grace isn't sufficient, and that could be comfortable because you have something tangible to point to and say, here's my worth. Here's my worth, where grace alone says unworthy yet clothed in righteousness, unworthy yet loved, unworthy yet accepted. Grace plus works says uh, unworthy but maybe good enough. Unworthy but I can still do something to, 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 to secure my relationship with God, to give me some firm foundation on my own in my relationship with God. And Paul gives a warning about that. He gives a threefold warning in verse two. He says, beware, beware, beware. And he has strong words to, to call these Judaizers, to call these legalists. Beware of the dogs, 
Dogs were not friendly household pets in, in, in Jesus' day. They were mangy, nasty street scavengers that carried diseases and would attack people. They were dangerous. They weren't, they weren't, they weren't friendly. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of the false circumcision. He gives these warnings. I think of with the hurricane passing and, and, and the, the warnings that were given to towns in, in North Carolina. Evacuate. This is going to be dangerous. Evacuate. Some people heeded those warnings. They believed them. Said, yeah, yeah that's, that's dangerous. I see it. I'm going to leave. And others did not. And many have, have suffered loss, life, and, and even danger and put others at risk because they didn't heed the warnings. So it's worth our heeding these warnings. Not to think, well, I won't slip into that. That's not me. Paul says, beware, be careful, because the road is slippery. If you're familiar with the, the classic story, Pilgrim's Progress, there's a point at which Pilgrim's walking through the valley of the shadow of death, and on one side there's a miry bog of licentiousness, just thinking I can live however I want to. Yeah, grace is free. I live and do whatever I want. And, and the other side is a cliff, and down the bottom of the cliff is legalism, the, the comfort of following the rules and boasting and rejoicing in righteousness through the rules. And, and Pilgrim has to walk this narrow path, and that's a picture of the Christian life. There's the tendency to slip towards licentiousness, which is another sermon. There's the tendency to slip and fall off into legalism, into boasting and rejoicing in, in a righteousness that, that, that looks like our, our own. And it's dangerous. It's dangerous. When our eyes shift off the grace of God and onto our own good works, we're headed for trouble. Let me give you, let me give you an, a, a great example of, of what this looks like. Um, flip over to Luke chapter 18. Jesus tells a parable that, that captures this extremely well. Luke 18, I'll, I'll read this, verses 9 through 14. And he also told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Two men went up to the end of the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. <clears throat> the Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pray. I pay tithes of all I get. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, this man went away to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. He who humbles himself will be exalted. Notice this in, this in this parable. The Pharisee who's here, who was he thanking for his righteousness? He was thanking God. Do you catch that? This is, he acknowledges, he at least acknowledges that any goodness in himself doesn't come from himself. And yet he still boasts in it. He still rejoices in it. How do we know that? It's because he's leveraging that against the, the sinner, against the tax collector. 
right? That, that's what legalism does. It, it gives the, the shadow or the appearance of humility. And, and yet it's really boasting in ourselves. He, boasting even in that God wrought moral goodness is still boasting in ourselves. Any moral goodness you experience, it is a gracious work of God, and he should be praised for it. But it's the fruit of your joy in his grace, not the root of your joy. Not the root of your joy. Compare this to the tax collector who recognized his need for God's mercy and his grace. Tax collector, he, he, he recognized, he said, be merciful to me, the sinner. So let me ask you this. At the end of the day, of these two men, who had reason to rejoice in the Lord? The tax collector. The tax collector would celebrate it because he knew he brought nothing to the table. He understood grace. He saw his need, and it was a deep need. But the Pharisee, when given grace, it's free. It, it, what do you mean you worked for it? It, it, it's free. He'd spurn it. He, he'd spurn it because he valued his, his good works. You mean I toiled and I worked and I, I, I did all of this? It's, it's, it's free. You see, legalism robs us of joy by making our security with God contingent upon our performance. It makes our security, our relationship with God contingent upon our performance the constantly looking over our shoulder and saying, Lord, are you pleased with me? Are you, are, you, are you pleased with me, Lord? Did I do good enough today? Let me check my calendar. How many days have I gone without looking at something on the internet? How many, I, I didn't gossip today. Lord, are you, are you pleased with me? Are you, are you pleased? Is, is, my, is it well with my soul? That's legalism that asks that question. Am I good enough, Lord? Am I, am I doing good enough? How's my suit of fig leaves? Am I good enough? Legalism further not only kills your private joy, it robs you of it, it kills corporate joy. It kills your joy amongst each other because you're constantly comparing your performance with other people, right? You, you can't rejoice when, some, when the Lord answers a, a, a prayer of somebody else. Can't rejoice with them. Because you, you, maybe you're jealous. I don't, I don't think this person deserves that. Yeah, look, at, look at how they handle their, look at how they handle their finances. Look at how they, look at how they live their life. I can't believe that the Lord, the, they, they, got, they got the blessing. Right? There's jealousy there. Maybe you question why your prayer hasn't been answered. Well, Lord, you, you bless them, why not me? I'm doing better than them. I know, I got dirt on them. Lord, why are you blessing them? You can't rejoice with somebody who receives the blessing of God when, you, when, you're, when you're slipped into a legalistic mindset, when you're boasting in yourself and you're rejoicing in your own good works because, because you're not seeing that grace is free. When we slip into legalism, obedience to Jesus becomes a burden and not a delight. 
was driving home from, from work this past week, and I, I passed by several churches, and one of the churches I saw a sign, I literally had to do a double take because I didn't believe what I read. It, it said, I owe, I owe, so off to church I go. Now, I don't, I don't know the mindset of the, of the, of the person that, that posted that. Maybe it was supposed to be a tongue-in-cheek. Maybe it was supposed to be a, you know, uh, a, a joke. But it carries the sentiment of a lot of churchgoers. It is that, well, Jesus has saved me. He's done this good thing for me, so I feel the need to repay him. So I'm going to go to church. I'm going to go to a Bible study. I'm going uh, to got to read my Bible. Drudgery becomes the name of the game. And, and grace is really not cherished. Grace is not seen for, for what it is. It becomes a burden and not a delight. So what are you jo- rejoicing in? What are you boasting in? Let's get real this morning. Be practical. If grace is the foundation for our joy and and legalism, adding something to it robs us of that joy, what are you boasting in? Let's check our hearts this morning. Is your joy in the Lord bound up in how well you're doing to keep the commandments of Scripture? Don't lust. Don't be angry. Love people with all your heart. Give up of yourselves for the good of others. Are you... When, when asked how well is your relationship with the Lord, do you look at your performance? Do you look and go, well, I had my quiet time this many times this past week. I prayed this many times. I tithed of all I have. I fast six times. Do you look at your performance? Or do you look at the throne of, Christ, uh, of, of God and say, my righteousness sits there. I'm, I'm celebrating, I'm rejoicing in the finished work of Jesus on the cross and, and, and my obedience to him flows out of that. It's the fruit of my root of joy in Christ. What are you boasting in this morning? What are you rejoicing in? Maybe joy is elusive to you. Maybe joy is elusive to you because for, for some reason you carry... You carry baggage of past failures. Don't, that you don't really believe that grace is as free as it is. There's some sort of a catch. There's some fine print there that you've got to still make up for past failures. Let me, let me tell you, when Christ died on the cross, I, I love what Matt Chandler said. I can't say it better. He paid the bill in full. He, he paid the bill in full. You owe nothing. Your past failures are done away with. The, the very Son of God is what it took to pay for your sin. There is no higher price. The, can you add something to that? You, you can't. You can't add to that. So it's finished, it's done. You're free to rejoice. Can you say with Paul this morning, I count all things as loss compared to knowing Christ Jesus. Rejoicing in Christ, seeing grace for what it is, 
draws us more into relationship with Christ, wanting to know him more, wanting to fellowship with him more, wanting to experience him through the Holy Spirit in our daily lives. When grace is the foundation of our joy in the Lord, we embrace suffering rather than resent it. Paul says in Romans 8, momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory. He says again to the Philippians, for to you has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. He writes to Timothy and he says, join me in suffering for the gospel. All of the apostles who were timid and fearful in the, in the, huddled in the upper room. And Jesus says, I'm, I'm going away. You're griefed now. You're, you're, you're afraid. But you will have joy. You will rejoice when I come back. And no one will steal that joy from you. And when Christ returned and the Holy Spirit returned, it turned their world upside down and they changed the world through the proclamation of the gospel. And when he said, I will be with you, he meant it for them and he meant it for us. When grace is the foundation of... Uh, <clears throat> when grace is the foundation of our joy in the Lord, it rolls over into our relationships with others. It, it has an overflow that, that affects others. Let me ask you, does your spouse know that grace is the foundation for your love for him or her? Or, or, or is it based off performance? Is your affection and love for your spouse demonstrated through or based off of performance or is it based off of grace? If you have kids or if you have grandkids, do your children know that your love for them is based off of grace or based off of how well they do in obeying you because we want our kids to obey us we want our grandkids to obey us right it's it's good we that's good for them but it's easy for them to make the connection that mommy and daddy grandma grandpa their love for me is contingent upon my obedience we have to make the effort to show them and to teach them and to point them to scriptures and say my love for you is not contingent upon your obedience. I may not be happy with you and I may discipline you, but it is for your good. My love for you is based off of grace because Christ's love for me is based off of grace. What about your love for others within the church? Is it based off grace or is it based off law? Do you look at other people within the church or within your work or, or anywhere and and do you relate to them based on how well you perceive their moral perfections, their conformity to particular convictions that, 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 that are secondary at best or tertiary? Or do you exercise grace with them? How do you conduct your relationships there? Is, is, is grace the, the foundation of, of your joy and does it overflow in your relationship with others? How about in, in how you, you hold one another accountable? We have to be careful with that. We have to be careful in, when we ask questions like, well, how'd you do this week? How'd you do with your time in the Word? How'd you do with what you looked at on the computer? 
had to do with, with, your, with, with dealing with anger this week. Because those questions should never stand alone or lead directly to a me-you-centered strategy to do better. And that's the temptation. Okay, I've got to do better. I've got to put boundaries in place. I've got, to, I've got to do better this week because ultimately we're looking over our shoulder going, Lord, are you pleased with me? Lord, are you pleased with me? Oh, I, I messed up. The Lord's not pleased with me. And granted, we should not grieve the Holy Spirit. Yes, we should be obedient. But when we start to think that way, we're slipping into legalism. Those questions of, brother, how you doing? Sister, how you doing? How you doing this week? Should move us to to questions of the heart and remembrance of the gospel. That in spite of your struggle, in spite of your failure, you are loved. You are cherished. You're clothed in his righteousness. Be reminded of his grace. Celebrate his grace. Rejoice in his grace. Now live out of it. As Jesus said to the, woman, uh, to, uh, to, to the adulterous woman, neither do I condemn you. Now go and sin no more. This is, this is grace. It is the foundation of our joy in the Lord. And we, and we ought to be careful not to try and add to it. I hope that's encouraging to you this morning. It's been encouraging to me as I've, I've worked through it that, that we are free to rejoice in the Lord and that it has a deep-rooted meaning because it can mean we can rejoice in suffering. It can re- mean that we rejoice when we're wronged. We can rejoice when someone else is wronged that we can weep with those who weep and still be rejoicing. It's not bound by our circumstances. It's bound by our relationship with the Lord and that no one can steal that joy from us. So let's pray. Um, and then as, as we close, um, we're going to shift into a, just a brief housekeeping meeting. We mentioned this last week. I'm going to turn it over to Alan uh, in order to kind of make that transition. So let me, uh, let me pray for us. Father God, we we thank you for the cross. Thank you that Jesus, the God-man, came and lived a perfect life under the law. He was for us the righteousness which we could not be. He tore the veil apart that separated your glory from us, brought us into your fellowship, redeemed us, purchased us, propitiated your wrath from us, calls us friend, stands before you and says, behold, here am I in the children whom you have given to me. And we could say we're adopted sons and daughters of you. Father, may your grace permeate our lives. May it permeate our Marriages, may it per- permeate our friendships, maybe it per- permeate our work, maybe it permeate our fellowship together. May there be a rich economy of grace amongst us. May it be so thick and may we pass that currency of mercy and grace amongst us that others who come into connection with us salivate for it, long for that. May we be 
eager to share that bread with them. Father, thank you. Thank you for grace. Keep us from stumbling, from slipping into the, the, uh, to the error of thinking that we can add something to it. And may we live out of the righteousness that you've given us. And may we rejoice and boast in you alone. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.